God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the swelling quake at its swelling, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in her midst, shall not be moved. Come behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Holy Father, we thank you that what you've promised here someday will be a reality, that our Savior will come again, the Messiah, and he will rule and reign for a thousand years upon the earth. And we look forward to that blessed day before he brings us into the final eternal state. And we come this morning as your children, seeking to find our rest in you and you alone. Though the world is forever changing around us, we thank you that you are sovereign and on your throne that there's a stillness and a stability in the heavens above. And our Father, we come to you today that what we just sang, Be Thou My Vision, would be reality. And so we ask that if it is clouded, that you would clear it up through the teaching of your word. You said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we come in humility as we open our hearts to your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I pray that you would help me, that you'd strengthen me, that you would anoint me and allow me to know the unction of the Spirit of God today. May together we lift up Jesus, in whose holy name we pray, amen. Take God's word this morning, would you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Most people can at least find the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and the last book, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. But what they do not know is the vast contrast between the two. In Genesis, the earth is created. In Revelation, it passes away. In Genesis, there is the first rebellion. In the Revelation, there is the final rebellion. In Genesis, sin enters into the human race. By the time we're done with Revelation, God will abolish sin in the race. The curse begins in Genesis, but in Revelation, the curse is forever banished. In Genesis, death begins. In Revelation, It forever ends. In Genesis, man is banished from the Garden of Eden, excluded from the tree of life. In the Revelation, he's invited back in, and we will once again eat from the tree of life. The dominion of man over the earth is removed in Genesis, but it will be restored in the Revelation. So we are in an exciting adventure as we work chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this incredible book. And this morning we are coming to the end of the second section of the book of Revelation where Jesus speaks of the things that are are. He addresses seven literal real churches that were in existence when he wrote them at about 95 A.D., And there's all kinds of organizations in this world, but there's nothing quite like the joy, the peace, the fellowship, the intimacy that a healthy local church can know as they rely upon the living God. Such a church is a tremendous testimony 
It's a, it has a tremendous power for the living God to influence and to change the culture around us. So here today we come to the final of the seven churches that Jesus addresses, but he doesn't just address churches, he addresses individual Christians. Remember, these were real churches, real people, and he addresses seven specific churches that were in existence in the first century. And we saw that there was a common phrase that was found with all seven churches. It's found in our text this morning. And with each church, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says that seven times over. Why? Because he recognizes that any church can experience the good things and the bad things that these seven churches knew. And any individual can experience these good things or these bad things that these seven churches knew. And so people often, I think, unfortunately, rush through these seven churches Sometimes they'll do one sermon. We've done a sermon for each church, not one for seven, because this is so vital, because every local church fits into one of these seven at some point in its history. It's possible that a church could be like Philadelphia at one point, like Laodicea at another point. And so churches can change, but churches typically are composite of what the individuals are. And it's possible for a church to be like the church at Philadelphia, but for you personally to be like the church at Smyrna. And so he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what he says to the churches. And Jesus cares about these churches. He loves his church. He gave his life for the church. And so he gives them encouragement where they need it, and he gives them rebuke where they also need it. And so... I gave you, as we started these seven churches, four reasons why Jesus selected these particular seven. I mean, why didn't he choose the church at Colossus? That's in this region we call Asia Minor. It's, it's just a short stone's throw away from the church that we're studying today, Laodicea. Why didn't he address that church? It seemed to be so much more famous. And, and, and why not address churches like Antioch, the great missionary church? Or Jerusalem, the founding church, the mother church. Or Rome, that was a great doctrinal church that had a force around the world. Why these seven? Well, if you're here for the introductory sermon on the first church, Ephesus, I gave you four of the reasons, but I told you there was a fifth reason that some espoused to, and you'd have to wait, and some of you thought I forgot, but I didn't. Uh, We're going to talk about that reason today. Some people think that he, for a fifth reason, chose these seven because they represent seven time frames in the history of the church. So they take each of the churches, Ephesus, and they say, well, that's the apostolic era. And they come to the seventh church and they say, oh, you know, Laodicea, that's the final church. That's the lukewarm church at the end of the age. And they will try to match up these seven churches with seven time frames in history. I don't think that's correct for several reasons. Number one is he is writing here in the second section of the book, the things that are. In chapter one, the things that were. He saw a marvelous vision of Christ and he recorded it. Chapters two and three, he's writing from the present tense of seven churches that were functioning in that day. But when you come to chapter four, he will write about the things after these things. Metatata, after these things. And the futuristic section of the book will begin when we come to that particular section. And what's also interesting is that it's very difficult to pinpoint 
and to say, well, this church represents from this year to that year, and the second church represents from this year, and so on. Not to mention that you get as many opinions as you get commentators. I don't think that's what is really in view. So those who have taken that approach to this section of Scripture uh, thought in the 16th century, for instance, that they were the Laodicean church. Well, I don't think so. I don't think they had the marks that were necessary for them to be in the Laodicean age. But with that said, you might ask, is it possible that we are in the Laodicean age? Yes, it's very possible. Why? Because what is true of Laodicea, Jesus said would be true at the end of time. And if you've studied church history, we are living in a unique time and a unique age that characterizes the Laodicean church. Jesus, from other passages of Scripture, affirmed what the church would be like at the end of time. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness is increased. What's lawlessness? Sin is lawlessness, John said. Because lawlessness, because sin is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Jesus warned that at the end of the age, he's talking to Christians here, a lot of people are going to have indifferent hearts. Cold hearts, what we might call, using this morning's text, lukewarm hearts. Now, some people might say, well, if that's the hand we're dealt, we have to live it. Not at all, because we learn from this particular church that you choose the kind of life you want to have. You choose which church is yours. And if you haven't done it yet, I hope you will. I hope you'll go back and think through which of these seven churches is true of me. And I hope you'll look at it carefully and humbly because let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. What could be true of you today could be very different a year from now if you don't continue to rely on the grace of God. Now, a few of you asked me, you said, when are we going to get into all the exciting stuff? You know, all the blood and gore and violence and, you know, all that stuff, Pastor. We're coming to it. We're getting ready to turn a corner. But what we're looking at is very, very important, and we need to hear it. Now, with that said, let's read our text. We want to begin in verse 14. If you're joining us, we're working through every single verse of the Revelation, and we're this morning in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There is a sin, figuratively speaking, that nauseates God that a Christian may commit, 
that makes God want to throw up, it is the sin of lukewarmness. So you can see the topic in this morning's note-taking outline in your bulletin is called Lukewarm Christians. And so if you are lukewarm, you do not have to be. You do not have to become a part of what the church, Jesus said, will be like at the end of the age. So three simple principles this morning. First, the curse of lukewarmness. Let's begin by thinking about the curse of lukewarmness. Verse 14 begins with the familiar introduction to the angel, the angelos. We saw it could be used of both a literal angel or a human here. He's writing to seven pastors, what today we call the senior pastors, the point pastors, so to speak, and then a local assembly, to the angel of the church and Laodicea right. Now, again, here on the map, you can see there are seven churches here in Asia Minor, the province called Asia Minor, as we call it today, to distinguish it from the continent of Asia. Asia was not the continent that we know of today, but it was a particular section of the Roman Empire. And he addresses these seven churches. ESP, that's the first three, remember? Uh, Ephesus. Ephesus is what we call the formal church. They were straight as an arrow doctrinally, but devotionally, their hearts had somewhat missed it. And so Jesus wants to bring them in line with their first love because they had left their first love. We went 35 miles up the road to Smyrna. Smyrna is what we call the fearful church because Jesus said, do not fear. It was a great church. It's only one of two churches that Jesus does not rebuke, but only commends and encourages. And they were fearful because they were suffering for Jesus. They were being persecuted. They were willing to lay down their life if necessary for the cause of Christ. Then we went another 50 miles north to Smyrna, up there at the top of the horseshoe, so to speak. And we call that the faltering church at Pergamum, um, in the church at Pergamum. And the church at Pergamum was faltering because they were compromising, They were just kind of, you know, softening truth. You cannot do that and be faithful as a pastor to the Word of God. Neither can you do it uh, personally without violating what God wants you to be. Then we went another 40 miles southeast, ESP, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, TSP. What's the next one? It's right there in the thing. Thyatira, right? Thyatira. They were the false church. They literally allowed false doctrine to come into the front door of the church. And so we talked about Jesus or Jezebel. You must choose. Then we traveled another 30 miles to what I called the fruitless church, Sardis. I don't think I'd want to call my church Sardis. Uh, you know, sometimes I see churches that adopt names. I think, why'd you call that name? You know, Sardis Baptist Church or Sardis Presbyterian Church or whatever it might be. Maybe as a reminder, I don't want to castigate those people, but it was the fruitless church. They did not have the kind of fruit that God wanted them to have because they had kind of a ho-hum, self-reliant spirit. Then we came to the church at Philadelphia. Remember that? Philadelphia was the faithful church. Again, it's one of two churches of which no rebuke is made. And so they were faithful believers. That's the kind of church you want to be like. And then we came after Philadelphia, we come today to Laodicea. And Laodicea is what I'm calling the fashionable church. You talk about a wealthy church, you talk about a church with bucks. It was this church 
but unfortunately, they were wretched and miserable. Here's a picture of Laodicea. If these rocks could speak, and they do, because archaeologists have poured over them, and you learn a whole lot from the stones and the inscriptions, not to mention first century historians who wrote about this particular place. Uh, It was an incredibly wealthy city. It had kind of a Mayo Clinic, a Macy's department store. It was a Beverly Hills and a Goldman Sachs, Wall Street, all rolled into one place. They had a medical center, so famous that people traveled across the Roman Empire to come to this particular place. They were well known for their medical care, especially the ISAV that people would get in this place, and it was exported across the empire. It was a Beverly Hills of sorts. You go to these ruins, and you see some of the houses were absolutely magnificent, And it wasn't an exceptional house, it was more of a normal house. People lived in very big homes for the first century. They had a a textile industry as well. And so in that sense, they were like a Macy's. They produced a black wool outside of the city that was absolutely a trademark of the place. It was almost a black, uh, purple color. And it was so soft that people wanted some clothing that came from the sheep in this particular place. But it was also the banking center for the entire province of Asia Minor. In fact, they were so wealthy, when an earthquake came in 62 AD, and the Roman government, as they typically did, offered to rebuild the city, the citizens refused. They said, no, we have enough money, we will rebuild it ourselves. Now remember, this Beverly Hills of Asia was uh, so keen on what they have, they said, we're wealthy and we don't really have need of anything. That's the way they thought. And it was true, I suppose, and that they had all these things around them and they didn't need food stamps. They didn't need to be on welfare. They didn't need the government's help, but they needed Jesus's help. And that's where their values were twisted. Now, this is a second generation church. Remember, this is 95 AD. It wasn't always this way, which causes us to act humbly before the Lord because a great church today in 20 years could be a bad church, a weak church, a fruitless church, a false church, a formal church. All kinds of issues could enter in. Now, if you remember, the Apostle Paul mentions this church in his letter to the Colossians. Let me remind you of what he said. He commends them in Colossians 4, and he greets them in Colossians 2 and 4, and reminds them of the great concern they had for one of his chief compatriots in the gospel, a man by the name of Epaphras. Let me read of Colossians 4.16. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. You say, did Paul write a letter to Laodicea? No, no, no. Now, you will read in some introductions to the New Testament that there are some, quote-unquote, lost letters in the New Testament. They say, well, Paul wrote another letter to the Corinthians, and it got lost. And there was another letter to the Laodiceans, and he mentions here, and this was obviously lost, not on your life. There's an explanation for each of those. And if you are with me in my course on bibliology, I cover that. Listen, God promised to protect his word, and indeed he has. But there were some letters, like the letter to the Ephesians is what we call circular letters. So after the Ephesians read it, it went, say, to Laodicea. 
And after Laodicea read it, it went to another city and they made their way around. God protected his word. Now, with that said, let's think about this curse of lukewarmness. Jesus addresses it on three levels. First, lukewarmness is a curse because it denies Christ's truthfulness. It denies his truthfulness. Again, in verse 14, reading a little further, to the angel, to the pastor of the church in Laodicea, right? The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Now, remember, in six of the seven letters, Jesus begins with a personal description of himself that he drew from chapter one. And some of you have already mapped that out. You went through chapter one and you matched up the different descriptions and which church Jesus assigned that description to. We saw there's just one church that doesn't get a description from chapter one. That was the church at Philadelphia because Jesus gives them a special commendation. And with each description of himself, he is using that description either to encourage them or to rebuke them because the description that he chooses in each of the churches dealt with the issues that they were facing. And so Jesus describes himself here as the amen. Did you know that was one of the names for Jesus? The amen. It is. The amen because amen is a confirmation of truth. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, for all the promises of God in him and Jesus are yes and in him, amen. Paul tells us that Jesus is the proof that God keeps all of his promises. And indeed he did. All the prophecies he made concerning Messiah, Jesus fulfilled. Amen. It's, it's a familiar word to most of us. We say it at the end of a prayer. We say amen. Uh, you hear something that a preacher preaches and it rings true in your heart and you, you believe it. And so you say yes, or so be it, or truly, or amen. And what's interesting that Jesus would use this title, the amen, is he is equating himself to God the Father. Put out in the margin next to the amen, Isaiah 65, 16. Isaiah 65, 16. It's one of many examples. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Now, I've underlined that phrase twice here, the God of truth. But actually, in the Hebrew Bible, it reads, the God of the amen. That one English translation renders it that way. The God whose name is amen, the New English Bible puts it. The Hebrew literally says, the God who is the amen. So when Jesus calls himself the amen, as we've seen him do in a number of the appellations that are given to him in that first chapter vision, he is affirming his own deity. Now, there are many ways to get to the deity of Christ. Sometimes there are direct quotes from the Bible that affirm his deity, but many times there are descriptions that can only apply to God himself. Now, in our English Bible, sometimes the word amen doesn't come through as consistently as it should as it does in other languages of the world. For instance, in John 5, verse 24, the NASB that most of you have this morning or the ESV reads, truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, the King James says, verily, verily, I say unto you. The Holman Christian says, I assure you. The Net Bible says, I tell you the solemn truth. But the Greek New Testament, as it reads in the uh, Slavic Bibles, reads, amen, amen, I say to you. 
So when Jesus wanted to underscore a very, very important truth, where in essence he says, pull your ear up and listen carefully, he'd say, truly, truly, or amen, amen, because he wanted you to get the truth. Amen is the last word, so to speak. He is the amen because he is God's last word. The writer of the Hebrew says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So it's fitting that Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, should assign to himself this title, the amen. Amen? All right, good, glad you're listening. So the Lord Jesus, he's the last word. He is indeed the amen. And I say that to underscore in your thinking that lukewarmness is a curse because it denies Christ's truthfulness. Lukewarmness denies the truth that Jesus' ways are the best ways and that they are worthy of our pursuit. Secondly, not only does lukewarmness deny the truthfulness of God, lukewarmness is a curse because it denies Christ's faithfulness. We read now in verse 14, to the angel, the church, and Laodicea, write the amen, the faithful and true witness. Not only is he the amen, making his word the final and conclusive word, he's also the faithful and true witness. Jesus is describing himself as totally reliable in contrast to the unreliable, unfaithful Laodiceans. Everything that he says is truth, and so therefore he is faithful to carry it out to do that which he has said. God cannot lie, Titus says, Hebrews 6 says, it is impossible for God to lie. Moses wrote, God is not like a man that he would ever lie. So he is the forever true witness. Jesus, in essence, is saying, I can only tell you the truth and I can only do the truth. And yet, when someone is lukewarm, in essence, by their lifestyle, they're denying that Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Basically, they're saying, Jesus, I know you said that you came to give me life and to give it me to me more abundantly, but that is not obviously true. You're not faithful to what you promised, and so because I do not really believe what you said about yourself, I'm going to find the abundant life out there in the world somewhere. By my lukewarmness, that is precisely what the believer is saying. Now, I don't think that a Christian would typically openly, brazenly put it that way. But in practice, that is precisely what they are doing. How do we know he is the faithful and the true witness? Well, look, keep reading. He is the faithful and true witness. Why? Because he is the beginning of the creation of God. You can know he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, because he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, what does that mean? Now, I should say parenthetically while we're here that this was the verse that started one of the earliest heresies in the third century church, a denial that Jesus was God. It's called Arianism, A-R-I-A-N, not A-R-Y-A-N. There was the Arian race that Hitler tried to propagate and say that white people were superior, the German white people, uh, over all of the other races of the world. That's not what we're talking about. And that, obviously, error and wickedness continues to this day. And it's only 
a small way today. You haven't seen anything yet. Before we're done with the Revelation, we're going to see that there's going to be ethnic wars across the planet like man has never known before. What we are witnessing in this past weekend is just a foretaste of what is coming during the time of the Great Tribulation. So we're not talking about Arianism. We're talking about Arianism, and there's a difference. And Arian, A-R-I-A-N, was a heretic who denied the deity of Christ. And he would use verses like this. See, he's the beginning of creation. That is, he is created, they say. No, Jesus was never created. When children come into the office, I sometimes ask them, how old is Jesus? What am I digging for? I am wanting them to see that you cannot age Jesus, that there was never a time when he was not, that he is the eternal God. There was a time when he didn't have a human body. That's what we celebrate at the incarnation. But he is the eternal God, co-equal, in coexistence with the Father and with the Spirit. He was never created. And it's so clear in the Greek text, but listen, even if you didn't read Greek, you would know, well, God can't contradict himself. Scripture interprets Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And there are many clear designations of his deity and many clear descriptions that could only apply to God, like the one we just read, the Amen, one of the titles for Yahweh in the Old Testament. The word here is arche, beginning, and it is used in the Bible to describe the source of all creation. And if you read Colossians, as this church did, they would understand that. Let me read Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This verse, Colossians 1.16, informs me that it was the Son of God who was actually doing the creating. Now, obviously, God is inseparable, and so sometimes the Father is credited with creation. Sometimes in Job, for instance, the Spirit is credited with creation. But here, God the Son, all things were created through Him and for Him. There's not a blade of grass that grows on the earth that the Lord Jesus did not create. Now, here on this map slide, I want to imprint in your minds these cities and the distances between the three. There's Laodicea, there's Colossae, so the book of Colossians, and Heropolis, which I've already mentioned this morning. Laodicea, Colossae, and, um, and Heropolis formed a triangle of sorts. There are three closely situated cities. Laodicea is 10 miles from Colossae, and it's 13 miles from Laodicea. So with that said, these churches are mentioned. I just mentioned Epaphras. Let me read another text, and I'll make my point. In, a, in Colossians 4.13 of Epaphras, Paul said this, For I testify for him, for Epaphras, that he has a deep concern for you, that is the Colossians, and for those who are in Laodicea, that's 10 miles away and uh, that Jesus is addressing from Coloss in Heropolis, which is six miles away from Laodicea. So these three churches are mentioned here. What I'm trying to get you to think is that Coloss was just a stone's throw away and they understood the truths that came through the letter to the Colossians. Let me read Colossians 4.16. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. There you go. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. 
So they understood that all things were created by him and for him. Not that he was created, but he was the source. He was the beginning of creation. And so Jesus is reminding them that lukewarmness denies his truthfulness as the amen, and it denies his faithfulness that everything he says and all the promises he make are true and worthy of your trust. And we know that because he is the source of all creation. He is your creator, God. He knows everything about you. Look, when I get a car, I read through the owner's manual because I figure all the guys who created this little beast, know how it should best run. And so I say, well, I changed my oil here and the plugs here and the air filter here. And, you know, because they designed it. God, your creator, designed you in every square inch of you. And it denies that he is faithful and worthy of your trust as your creator when you choose to live a lukewarm life. Third, lukewarmness is a curse because it denies our usefulness. It denies our usefulness. Verse 15 begins, I know your deeds. Suppose you received a phone call this afternoon. It's an anonymous caller. And they said, I know what you did. You would either feel gratified or ashamed or maybe even paranoid that someone else knew your deeds, depending on the circumstances. When Jesus said these words to the church at Laodicea, he was basically saying to them, I know your deeds, and this was not a reason to rejoice. This was a reason to mourn. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, archaeologists have uncovered some interesting facts about this city. There was an aqueduct that ran from Heropolis that came all the way into the city of uh, Laodicea that was their water source. Every city needed a water source. Here's a picture. You can visit today the, the hot springs of Heropolis. And so it was carried on an aqueduct. When it left Heropolis, they were hot, the waters. And they were good to drink. I know some hot waters you can't drink. You can drink these. But by the time they got to Laodicea, they weren't cold, they weren't hot, they were lukewarm. Now, I enjoy hot coffee, and on occasion, iced coffee, but I don't like lukewarm coffee. Cold water is refreshing on a hot day. Hot water is comforting on a cold day. But, you know, lukewarm, it's, it's just not my cup of tea. I don't, I don't care for it. Well, the church at Laodicea it was neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm. And so Jesus applies a truth that ran through their minds in the spiritual realm. Unlike the cold water that the city of Colossae enjoyed, unlike the hot springs that comforted the people in Heropolis, in this city, they had lukewarm water. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Now, according to the analogy that Jesus uses here, being cold or being boiling hot are good things as opposed to being lukewarm. Think your way through this. Again, cold water on a hot day is refreshing and hot water is comforting on a cold, a cold day. But lukewarm water is neither. And so Jesus uses this analogy. I'd rather have you cold or hot. Why? Why would he say that? Now, I can understand why he would say, I'd like you to be spiritually hot for me, passionate for me, out and out sold out for me, living for me. But why would he say, I'd rather have you to be cold for me 
than to be lukewarm. Well, obviously, if you are on fire for Christ, then you are living a life worthy of the Lord Jesus. On the other hand, if you are cold and an outright apostate, an outright unbeliever and headed for hell, at least people have your number. But when you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, claiming to be a believer, born again and dwelt by the Spirit of God as these people were, then by your lifestyle, you are denying that Jesus is worthy. By your lifestyle, you are becoming a stumbling block and people are pointing the finger at you and say, look you, hypocrite, you Christian, who say one thing and do another. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I would rather have you out and out against me than to pretend to be born again and serve me half-heartedly. Uh, you're thinking, well, look, I, I suppose wouldn't it be better to be lukewarm and on your way to heaven than to be cold and on your way to hell? Well, Jesus makes it clear that's not the way he's thinking. Look at verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It is the lukewarm Christian that is keeping so many people out of salvation, out of heaven, and God loves the salvation of souls. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Listen, I believe if just 10% of the American church were on fire for Jesus, we could turn this nation around. We could turn it upside down. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The word spit or spew in the King James is rather a polite term. It's the Greek word emeo, and it's a much more graphic term. The Net Bible and the New King James captures it. I will vomit you out of my mouth. For a church like Laodicea, to have come in contact with the great truths that they had learned even in the letter to the Colossians alone, to have learned and to believe those truths, that they were saved by the grace of God Almighty and to live indifferently just made God sick. Now, how do you get lukewarm water out of the spigot? Well, you turn on the hot and you add some cold and you kind of neutralize it and you get it lukewarm. That's the way some Christians are. One foot in the world and one foot in the church. They come to church on Sunday, but they live a different life during the week. And they are denying Jesus' worth. You cannot be a fence-sitter and be pleasing to the Lord as a believer. C.T. Stott, I read his autobiography as a young man, as a relatively new Christian, and he was a medical doctor in England. He was raised in the lap of luxury. I mean, they were worth millions. And of course, uh, he recognized at one point in his life that he was one of those lukewarm, apathetic Christians. He ended up making his life right, and he actually went and spent the rest of his life serving as a missionary in Africa. Now, a lot of you know at least a stanza out of the famous poem he wrote. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. But what many people do not know is that he wrote that poem in response to a tract that he read by a so-called atheist. 
And God used the tract of an atheist to move him out of his lukewarmness. Let me read a portion of that tract as it comes from his autobiography. Did I firmly believe, the atheist wrote, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another, religion would mean to me everything. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion would be my first waking thought, and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I should labor in its cause alone. I would take thought for the mar of eternity alone. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth a life of suffering. Earthly consequences should never stay my mind nor seal my lips. Earth, its joys and its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and on the immortal souls around me, soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. I would go forth to the world and preach to it in season and out of season. And my text would be, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now that was an atheist mocking the Christians of his day. And C.T. Studd was absolutely convinced that what that man said was true because it was consistent with the Bible and his life was not consistent. And so he writes that he was determined, I quote, from that time forth, my life should be consistent and I set myself to know what God's will is for me. Stud knew that Christ was not worthy of lukewarmness. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, please do not miss the audience to whom Jesus is speaking. He's not speaking to the out-and-out sinner. He's not speaking to the one who's cold. He's not speaking to the one who's passionately living for Jesus. He's not speaking to the arrogant man who raises his fist boldly, brazenly, hatefully in the face of God, ignoring him, rejecting him. He is speaking to the lukewarm, fence-straddling Christian. Now, sometimes we call these people carnal Christians, but listen, some of those whom we call carnal Christians who are lukewarm are not Christians at all. They're actually lost. But listen, and we'll talk about that before we're done. We have a lot of lukewarm Christians in the era in which we live. And remember, at the end of the age, before Jesus comes again, what will typify the average Christian is their love will grow cold. That's what Jesus said. And I believe that's the age we are living in, a day of gross apathy. We have mild-mannered, weak preachers who are afraid to tell the truth, preaching to mild-mannered Christians, producing mild-mannered disciples, rather than people who are passionate for Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you why so many people are bored when they come on Sunday morning, because the preachers are boring, because they're bored with Jesus. How can you be bored with Jesus? How can you be bored with the one who gave everything for you, who redeemed you? How can you be lukewarm? Now, remember, these are people who came to church every Sunday. They weren't forsaking the assembly. They were there. They were singing the hymns. But there are Christians today who are lukewarm. They spend more time on their Facebook page than they do in the Holy Scripture. They come here and they sing the hymns, and as soon as they get into the parking lot, they turn on the secular worldly music. They know little about praying, maybe nothing about fasting, and they can't even believe God to give 10 cents out of a dollar. Lukewarm apathetic, fence-straddling Christians, me-centered Christians. 
Now that's the curse of lukewarmness. Let's talk now about the cause of lukewarmness, the cause of lukewarmness. Half the problem sometimes in solving a problem is seeing that there is a problem, but also to identify the cause of the problem. And so Dr. Jesus, like the great physician, underscores the cause of the problem again on three levels. First, he reminds us that lukewarmness is caused by warped values. Verse 17 begins, because you say I am rich and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable. Now the church in Laodicea is so different from the church in Smyrna for they thought they were poor, but Jesus said they were rich. These people thought they were rich and Jesus said you're wretched and miserable. Perhaps here we have a hint of why this church that was once a great church had declined spiritually. They had probably become proud of their ministry and they were evaluating their church by human standards and not by the divine standards of Jesus Christ. Listen, it doesn't matter what the church growth guy thinks of our church. What matters is what Jesus thinks about this church. Had you visited Laodicea and you said, hey, I'm a Christian from Ephesus, I'm looking for a church. Oh, let me tell you about First Church Laodicea. They're a great church. You need to go to, they've got a magnificent building. What a facility, what programs. Now, I know they didn't have buildings at this time. They met at homes. Oh, but you should see the home they meet in. It's a magnificent, beautiful, Beverly Hills kind of home. And the things they have going on, you need to go there. And the way they evaluated their success was warped. They didn't really see themselves, as Jesus is going to point out, the way they needed to see themselves. And we have the same problem today. We have people who come to hear sermons and we think, oh, tell them, Pastor. I wish so-and-so were here today to hear that message. If they were here, wow, you would have gotten them. I told you once about the story about the man who would leave the church every Sunday and meet the preacher at the door and said, Pastor, that was a great sermon you really got him today. You really comb their hair. And week after week after week, he'd make these statements. And what the pastor knew is this man didn't see that he was a problem. And sometimes as he would prepare his sermon, he'd think about this man. He'd pray for this man. He loved this man. He'd, he, he, he would think about what he was going to say as it related to this man. And week after week, he'd meet him at the door. Pastor, you got him again. You comb their hair. Well, one day there was a terrible snowstorm and only one man showed up, this one man. The pastor thinks, I'm loaded for bear, I'm going to get him. And he got up with all the passion and fury of his heart and he preached the word and he ran to the exit and waited for the man to come and meet him. And the man shook his hand and said, Pastor, I wish the rest of the congregation was here. You really would have gotten them. You would have really combed their hair. Some of you say, tell them, Dr. Brogy. Get them, Dr. Brogy. Comb their hair. That's Laodicea. They didn't see it. They were blinded to the truth that they were lukewarm. And it was very, very sad. Secondly, not only did they have warped values, they didn't see themselves the way they needed to see themselves. They also had lukewarmness that was caused by self-confidence, by self-confidence. Now in verse 17, because I say you have become wealthy, you do not know you are poor. Now this church had a very different opinion of itself. It evaluated itself and was pleased with itself and its circumstances. 
But just like the citizens in this affluent city who said, I've become wealthy and have need of nothing, these people had done that in the spiritual realm when in reality they were spiritual paupers. Now we may admire people who can take care of themselves in the physical realm, that they don't have to beg, that they've got plenty of money. And sometimes prosperity becomes a stumbling block where it blinds us in the spiritual realm. And so Jesus will say on the night before he's crucified, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The second law of thermodynamics says that something must be added from the outside or the system will eventually decay or die. So without electricity, the water heater goes cold. Without refrigerant, the air conditioning does not work. And without Jesus working in and through you, you become lukewarm. And that's where these people were. I have need of nothing. And they did not understand just how great their need was. Third, the cure goes on. Lukewarmness uh, is caused by spiritual blindness. It's caused by spiritual blindness. Again, the cause, it's caused by spiritual blindness. Let me highlight the third problem he spells out. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, the reality is you do not know that you are blind and naked. Jesus was saying, you think you've got it all together. You think you are looking fine when in reality you are naked. You have no clothes on and you cannot even see that you are naked. Now, the corrections that he makes, again, are allusions to the society in which they were in, which is why God says, don't be conformed to the world around you. Don't let the world shape you into its mold, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. They lived in a place where there was a lot of wealth, an incredible banking industry, a medical school, a clothing service. And so Jesus takes the situation that had shaped them and addresses it specifically. As this chart says, they said, I am rich. Jesus said, you are wretched and miserable. They said, I am wealthy. Jesus said, you are poor. They said, I have need of nothing. Jesus said, in reality, you are blind and naked. I have four words circled in this verse. The words you say, and I have an arrow here in my Bible going down to you are. You say this, but let me tell you what you really are. Now, he's not done. Jesus reminds them that what you say you are is not really true of you, and it's not true of me as the great amen. So he doesn't stop there. Having given the curse of lukewarmness and the cause of lukewarmness, he now describes the cure for lukewarmness. Like a great physician, he not only identifies the problem and goes to the root of the problem rather than to some band-aid fix, now he gives the cure for the problem. And the cure for lukewarmness begins with embracing the Lord's assessment. Until you own the problem for yourself, you're not going to move forward. Listen now to verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So the solution is to measure our standards by God's standards. If I ask you what temperature it was, you might say, well, 32 degrees. I might ask someone else, and then I'd say it's zero. Well, who would be right? Well, in one sense, you'd both be right, because one is on the Fahrenheit scale, and the other is on the centigrade scale. 
But what you want to do is you want to get your measurements on God's scale. You want to evaluate your life in light of the Lord's scale, in light of His standards. Verse 18 begins, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. The key three words is buy from me. It's a profound truth God wants us to grasp. He is completely sufficient to meet all of the needs of the individual's believer here today. Now, nothing wrong with having a nice building to meet in any more than to have a nice house to live in. But listen, those things do not represent the deepest needs of life. Our deepest needs are gold, white clothing, and eye salve. The first of these is gold refined in fire. He is in essence saying, you know all about gold. You're one of the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire. You've stored away gold in the bank, but what you need is my gold. You need to buy from me gold that is really gold that's refined in the fire. So how precisely do we buy gold? How do we buy from Christ what he wants us to have? Well, listen to Isaiah 55.1. This is Christ's way of describing his spiritual blessings He says here, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you have no money, come. Buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You see, what he wants us to have in one sense is free. But it's found in Scripture. It's found in a different set of principles. Principles that are rooted here in the Word of God where you exchange worldly riches for true riches, where you lay up treasure in heaven and not simply treasure on earth. How do you do that? You have to find out what God counts as gold, what God considers to be worthy of your investment. Then he mentions not only gold, but here in verse 18, white garments. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Now, white garments are used in a couple of different ways in the Revelation. If you were here a few weeks ago, I underscored two usages. Once, it's used for justification, but it's also used in the Revelation for sanctification. For instance, in Revelation 7.14, John sees this great multitude of people who had been beheaded for the faith, and he wants to know who they are. And the answer is, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That speaks of justification. This was a group of people who refused to bow down and give allegiance to the Antichrist in order to survive. They were willing to pay the ultimate price, even their lives. And because of that, they demonstrated genuine salvation, and they had robes of righteousness. But it's also used in the book of Revelation and in other passages to speak of sanctification. For instance, in Revelation 19 and verse 8, it was given to her, the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here he's describing some people who are unstained by the world, who in the process of daily choices they have made, have put on the kinds of deeds and works that really matter, that are important to the living God. So that's what Jesus is saying. I advise you you to buy for me white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness. You're buying all kinds of things, but the wrong things, your heart is in the wrong place. Now certainly, if you're here today and you're not a true Christian, 
You need the robe of justification, the white robe of salvation, because if you don't have it and Jesus comes back, you will die and go to hell. But if you are a Christian, it's important that we buy the white robes of sanctification, that we are investing our lives in the things that really matter. Jesus, in effect, is saying, you may be shipping clothing all around the world, but the reality is you're naked. I advise you, third, to buy for me eye salve, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, remember, it's a medical center. And this center, according to one ancient historian, was famous for their eye salve. They reduced it to a powder. They shipped it around the empire. You mixed it with water. And it had some value because people bought it and it helped them. As Jesus said earlier, you're known around the world. People see you as a medical center who can be of great help and blessing. But the reality is, while you're trying to help other people to see, spiritually, you are blind and you need to get eye salve from me. This is the great physician speaking. You may think you've got it all together, but you don't because you're lukewarm. Secondly, the cure for lukewarmness is not only to embrace the Lord's assessment. You admit there's no problem, you'll never cure it. Half my job as a pastor sometimes in helping people with marriage counseling is to help them to see, you've got a problem, buddy. You're blaming your wife, you're blaming your husband, but the problem is you. You've got to begin with owning it. But secondly, you not only need to embrace his assessment, you need to respond to his command. Verse 19, those whom I love... I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Now, please understand, lukewarmness in Jesus' eyes is not some weakness. It is a wickedness. Now, some of you, you don't commit adultery, you don't get drunk, you don't drink, you don't steal, but you're lukewarm. And that is a sin that must be dealt with. And Jesus reminds us that those whom he loves, he reproves, Hebrews 12. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. God disciplines his children, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I think I'm a lukewarm Christian, but I've never been disciplined. You've got another problem. You're not a Christian. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Now, God is patient and long-suffering, but if you can run a long way in disobedience and never meet God in His discipline, then you've never met God in His salvation. And listen, if you're lukewarm today, before the day is over, I hope you'll get in some quiet place in your prayer closet and get on your knees, get on your face and say, Oh, God, I admit I am indifferent. I admit, God, I'm a fence straddler. And I confess my sin, and I ask that you would make me on fire for the Lord Jesus, for he is worthy of such fire. Finally, I learn in verse 20, the cure for lukewarmness is to pursue the Lord's person. We're not just talking about deeds, we're talking about a person. And Jesus affirms that here in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in, one word, to a second word, him. Not into one word. Two words in Greek, prosoton, literally to him, and will dine with him and he with me. Now, this is an invitation to believers. In the last 50 or so years, we've used it evangelistically. It has nothing to do with evangelism. 
into towards him. He's outside knocking on the door. He wants to come in and he wants to come towards you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. It's not an evangelistic verse. People in the last 50 years have talked about inviting Jesus into their heart. You will find that nowhere 100 years ago. That is not the way you share the gospel. Salvation has nothing to do with inviting Jesus into your heart. It has everything to do with believing and the death, burial, and resurrection of in his work on the cross, what we call the gospel. And a byproduct of that is he comes into your life. So one famous organization took these words into and made it one word, into. No, I will, I'll come towards you if you will open that door and I want to fellowship with you and dine with you. Jesus says, behold, here I am. He's outside and he's asking you to open the door. It's not a demand. He's not coercing you because love is a decision of the will. He wants to fellowship with you. I was in a famous church in London in one of the great cathedrals and here's Holman Hunt's picture that caught my eye. It shows Christ outside on the door knocking of a door that's covered in vines and unkept. And after he produced this picture, the critic said, and I quote, Mr. Hunt, it's beautiful, but there's one thing you forgot to put a doorknob on the outside of that door. And Holman Hunt responded, and I quote, I did not forget. I did it that way on purpose. The doorknob is on the inside. It must be opened from the inside. Jesus may be knocking on your heart today for salvation, and your greatest need is to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that He might come in. Your greatest need to is, is to admit your bankruptcy and to trust in His finished work on the cross that you can be forgiven and changed. But some of you have done that. And He's knocking on the door of your heart because you are lukewarm. And by a definitive, deliberate act, you must open that door. It's an incredible expression of grace. A church that is lukewarm, he is still seeking that church with his everlasting love. And notice, you talk about forgiveness and restoration. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down on my father on his throne. He says, I'll grant to him to sit down on my throne. I went once in my life into the Oval Office, and I so bad wanted to ask the president if I could sit in that chair behind the desk, but I didn't ask. Jesus is going to say, come sit on my throne chair. I'm going to let you sit on the throne of the universe. You talk about amazing grace, and not only will I let you sit on my chair... I'll let you rule and reign with me. Today, if you've blown it and you've messed up your life and you've soiled it, it can be the first day of the rest of your life and you can get things right with him. He who has an ear, I hope you've got one, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes wherever you may be. Be still before God right now. And if you're not lukewarm and you're passionate for Jesus, thank God, but ask Him to keep you that way until He comes back or takes you by death. But if you are lukewarm,
Would you commit in your heart today to make it right before this day is finished? Would you make it right right now in your heart, on your face before God to ask Him to forgive you? Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Father, the foolish things that we pursue and give our hearts to, forgive us for such clouded vision as Matt led us today. Be thou my vision, Lord. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. God, fill our minds with Yourself. Help us to passionately love and follow Jesus. That when we see Him in heaven, we'll not be ashamed. I pray today, Father, for someone who's here who's never called upon Jesus in faith. Help them to know that You love them that you want to forgive them, but you have no other way to forgiving them but through the cross. Help them to believe what you have promised, that Jesus paid it all, and help them in faith to say, Jesus, save me. And Father, for those who have messed up their lives, while you may not be able to erase some of the consequences, this, your word promises, can be the first day of a new start. Thank you that you are the father of a second chance, that we could even sit on the throne of Jesus and rule and reign with him. So help us not to test you and to invite your discipline, but help us to repent and to live zealously for you. Help us to be a testimony worthy of the amen, the faithful and true one. And we ask it, Lord Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing all the verses of this hymn. It's a great hymn. Maybe you don't need to publicly make a decision, but I want you to sing it as a prayer. But listen, somebody here, maybe you've received Christ and you've never made it public. What are you waiting for? Are you ashamed of Jesus? Jesus said, if you know him, you'll never be ashamed of him. Are you here today and you say, well, I come here and I go to this church and that church and... That's not a New Testament Christian. That's a lukewarm Christian. You've got to decide, who am I going to follow? Am I going to commit myself to a local fellowship of saints to serve Christ with those saints and to make a difference for things that really matter? I don't know what your need is, but as Matt leads us in this hymn, 
whether you're in Bluffton or Graniteville, if you have a decision to make, I want you to leave your seat and come to this front row. Matt, lead us. Would you step out now and come?